Welcome back to... Mysteries! Murders! Monsters! Hand your moms! I'm Julie. I'm Nicole. We're the moms. We are. We're back for part two. In the clubhouse! Again! Again. Yeah. I'm eating a cupcake. Again. From the Wandering Barista. They're really good. She makes the best stuff. I'm for Valentine's I Day. So, yeah. you like cupcakes. And you love people. Buy them cupcakes. <laughs> that's what they want. They want cupcakes. Just cupcakes. It is true. All right. Okay. It's going to be long. Let's, let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Right back into it. So, we... um. We talked about a lot. We talked about James Earl Ray, his side of the story, the civil trial, the ballistic evidence. We talked a lot about some of the specifics about what's going on in Memphis. I've talked to you about some names of people. Um, one of them that has come up is Frank Liberto. So we're going to start there because this is where we look at who might be in the bigger picture if mm -hmm. we're talking conspiracy. So... Frank Liberto, he's a mobster. He's affiliated with the um, mob family at that time out of um, New Orleans. It was a very powerful mob family. Um, and Lloyd Jowers, who we talked about last episode, had a lot to say about Frank, including that um, he owed Frank a favor. So, um, if you ask Jowers, he'll tell you that the favor was helping him keep his job on the police force when he was found drunk while on duty. Everything I've read about the Memphis police part divorce in the late 50s and early 60s tends to make me think that that probably wasn't necessary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there is a rumor that Frank helped him cover up a murder. Supposedly he shot someone he found in bed with Betty Spates. Ah! But, um, again, she never really says anything about it. Um, but his talk of violence and the way that he intimidated her, that's not un... It's not far-fetched. It's not impossible to believe. And it could also just be gambling debts. He was a known gambler. He gambled a lot. <clears throat> Bailed him out, maybe. And, uh, you know, that shit can pile up. So, Frank Liberto, as I said, was the co-owner of l, l Produce. So he was the kind of guy that would deliver money in a box of lettuce. <laughs> Which... It's all green. Man. So there will be green. money in your lettuce. Like, I love that. I don't, it sounds, it's stupid. And I'm not trying to make light of any of this. I'm really not. But, like, it sounds like something from a really bad movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> and the mob guy sent the money in the lettuce. Because he, it's like, you know, he owns the the, the produce yeah, yeah. company. Um, so, Frank Liberto. So, we're going to talk about some people that were around. Frank died, like, not I don't like I don't know I forget when exactly but he wasn't around much longer after so like there's a bunch of people that have things to say um, about him later so I'm gonna go through some of that so first was this woman who owned a restaurant her name was Lavada Woodlock Addison nice yeah some great some names in this names. episode her and Guy Knipe Knipe Entertainment ah so at the end of the day um. He would go to her restaurant and have drinks and talk to her. Like, he was just... I don't, they never say that they were in a relationship or anything. It's, it's kind possible. of implied, but whatever. Yeah. But he definitely confided in her and talked to her. And, like... Mm -hmm. So, one time, she says he was there, and Martin Luther King Jr., something about him was on the television. And he leaned in and, in a low voice, said, I had him killed. Her response was that she didn't want to know anything about that and walked away. <laughs> which... Smart. Exactly. Smart. He's a mob guy. You don't go messing around with this shit. Don't ask questions. But 
it stuck with her. And she did testify to this in a deposition. Um, it's also significant enough to her to tell her son about, who kind of grew up in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he knew Frank. He called him Mr. Frank because, you know, he was there all the time. And her son Nathan would also testify about his interactions with Frank Liberto. He confronted him about his involvement in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. one time. And he said that he didn't do it himself, but he had it done. And then he pressed him about James Earl Ray, and he said he was a setup man, a troublemaker from Missouri. So for me, this adds a little context to the story that we heard from Ray um, and some of the holes, right? Mm -hmm. Why was he targeted at all? Who got him out of jail? Maybe Ray crossed the line with the mafia, Mm -hmm. and he was set up because, you know, you, you, you fucked up. You done... He probably was you supposed done to be, screwed up. You did something wrong, so and you were supposed to be running shit. And you took off to L.A. to go be a right. dancing bartender, or like he, you know, doesn't go into detail, but messed up one of those runs or something, you know. So yeah. he's just a guy that they think, hmm, he's disposable. Yeah, yeah. and he doesn't, he doesn't live in Memphis, and I think that that's important mm-hmm. because if you lived in Memphis, you'd know other people that could be connected back to things. He's a person he's from outsider. outside, yeah. exactly. Um, and he's so. Gullible. Yeah, and I, again, there's more information in the podcast from this Nathan character um, just about who Frank kind of was as a person. I guess there had been an incident at the restaurant. There was, things got a little violent, and he, you know, kind of beat a guy up pretty bad. And so after that, Frank was like, hey, you want to come work for me and kill people? You oh, know, no. like, oh, yeah. which none of that ever happened. But, like, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it just kind of puts a point into the idea that, he wasn't a, um, you know, play around mobster. He was for real, like, you He's know. legit. Yeah. He was the godfather. Another man came forward after Frank's death to tell what he heard the day of the assassination as it pertains to Frank Liberto. So this gentleman, John McFerrin, was a black man who ran a small convenience store that black people could buy from because they weren't allowed to buy things from other convenience stores. And if you don't know about, you know, Jim Crow laws in the South, go get some books because it's really heartbreaking so but anyway he was really aware of the injustice surrounding him he had served in world war ii and came back to this situation and he was not he was involved in the civil rights movement as much as he could be as well as making a living um but he was important to him to have his store so people could come and get their things Mm -hmm. from him um and he goes into some more detail about all of that and things that were happening which isn't really relevant to the bigger story. Um, but he was very aware of Dr. King's presence there that at that time. Right. Like, he wasn't an, someone who didn't know what was going on. Um, so he purchased his produce from, previously mentioned, L&L Produce. So he happened to be there around 5.20 p.m. the day of the assassination, and he overheard some phone calls that day. The first one, someone answers the phone and gives it to Mr. Liberto, and he hears him say, Shoot that son of the bitch, son of a bitch on the balcony. Short time later, he hears a second phone call that Frank answers, and this time he says, "Go see my brother in New Orleans to get your five thousand dollars. Don't come here." Huh. And at the time, these mean nothing to him, but he goes home, finds out what happened, and he is like, just blown away because he's like, "I basically overheard the whole thing." The whole thing, yeah. Um. So, unlike a lot of the people, though, that we've talked about, he does come forward. So, most of the people we've talked about, you know, they waited till the civil trials or people were dead. Not Mr. McFerrin, which is amazing, but he's very careful about who he goes to talk to. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So he seeks out, um, there's a reverend named Baxton Bryant, and he was a white minister who was a staunch ally of the civil rights movement, and he used his power and privilege when he could. Um, but I think it was a really significant choice, because mm-hmm. obviously this man probably has his own church and his own minister, but he knew by going to a white minister who was also involved in the worker strike and everything they're like again that power dynamic right so he goes to him and he agrees that they should not go to local law enforcement right so they go to the fbi oh no which i know um and he is mcferrin is questioned for hours that night almost like they're trying to get him to change his story Mm -hmm. again question the next day again like they're trying to get him to change a story except at this point there is no story to change because they haven't identified ray yet as their yeah. suspect yeah okay so like it's kind of weird like they're trying to get him to say that's not what he heard when they really shouldn't have any reason to get him to not like yeah. to say that um and at the same time there is a sketch circulating um um it's the one of the person that was fleeing the scene the sketch that like Mm -hmm. walter cronkite basically refers to the well-dressed man yes well and this sketch was shown to mcferrin and he looked at it and said that he'd seen that guy in lnl produce on occasion and he was of some sort of spanish descent Mm -hmm. so but once obviously ray becomes the target of the investigation the sketch magically vanishes and they do give a photo lineup to McFerrin afterwards with Ray's picture in it, and he identifies another person in the lineup, which is different than the sketch, and the FBI police use this basically to discredit him. Right. FBI and police. Yeah. But if we're being honest about this, um, he didn't name Ray either. either. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, Ray is an, escape, an escaped convict. <laughs> Um, at this point, the word of a black shop owner in Memphis is really not significant enough to right. rise to any kind of power. And Reverend Bryant believed him. He never didn't believe him, mm-hmm. but he also didn't have any kind of sway do? to make this any right. more significant. But I have to say that, like, it was, like, really refreshing to hear somebody was able to, like, you know, come forward. Um, but he definitely felt intimidated by the police during the whole thing, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so next we need to talk about Ronnie Lee Atkins. So he did not come forward till 2009. He came forward because he had a story to tell, and boy, does he have a story to tell. And again, I probably don't believe all of it, but he definitely um, came forward, and they added his deposition, which was hours to the transcript of the civil trial because oh. it was so significant. And it does corroborate a lot of things that we've heard and mm-hmm. will hear. Um, Ronnie Lee Atkins was the youngest son of the family. And um, his dad was Russell Lee, or Russell Atkins Sr. And his brother was Russell Atkins Jr. And according to Ronnie, they played significant roles in the murder. And he did as well. Um, so let's start with his connection to Frank Liberto, since that's where we just were. No, but he did set him up with his very first, um, his very first, um, oh my God, brain work, his very first gig as like a drug runner, basically. He set him up. His first job. 
selling cocaine with melons melon from the cane. produce business. So, like, one melon would cost a dollar and one melon would cost, like, $200. <laughs> Special melon. Right? And Frank, he got caught once. So, he's still like a young kid. Ronnie gets caught, right? Mm -hmm. And Frank goes down to the police station. He's like, oh, this kid wouldn't do that. He would never do such a thing. And has mm -hmm. him right back out there the next day selling cocaine, you know, with melons. Sorry, I probably That's didn't funny. even need to put that in there, but I had to because I think it's freaking hilarious. So, uh, Ronnie's father, Russell Atkins Sr., was a very important person in Memphis. He was in charge of heavy equipment for the Memphis, Memphis Department of Public Works. So, he works for a government-ish, mm -hmm. local government agency. He was a 32nd degree Freemason. Oh, boy. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, cool. And... One of the known leaders of the Dixie Mafia, wow. which is basically an offshoot with ties to the regular mafia um, in the South. Wow. So, what a um, resume. yeah. And he used his influence. He's the one who got Mayor Henry Loeb elected, you know, the same mayor that was opposing the sanitation workers' strike, who would not consider their pleas or give them union protection. That was close. I said governor in the last Yeah, last mayor. Yeah. And um, he also was instrumental in getting Frank Holloman instituted as the chief of police and fire in Memphis. How about that? <coughs> Holloman came from the FBI, which brings me to his next connection. He was personal friends with the second hand man or second right hand man bleh, right hand man to J. Edgar Hoover himself Clyde Tolson and if you don't know who Tolson is I will get into him and Hoover later but um it's thought that they were actually more than work colleagues that they were in a potentially in a relationship together they traveled together, they vacationed together, they came to work every day together. Um, not that this matters, but it highlights how close this man was to the very powerful head of the FBI mm -hmm. um, during this time. And I'm going to keep, I will bring this back up again, but like it's just significant to know that um, the Atkins family was friends, personal friends with Clyde Tolson. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Ronnie, like I said, was the youngest. And by the time King was murdered, his father had actually passed away. But this had been in the works for quite some time. And the planning had been going on. And his father, his his brother Russell took over when his father died. Um, but Ronnie, being the young kid, was the guy that, you know, showed up with coffee for everyone at the prayer meetings, which were actually KKK meetings. That's what they called them. And sometimes at these prayer KKK meetings, Frank Liberto would be there. Or Clyde Tolson would show up. Um, also, the very powerful head of the New Orleans Mafia, Carlos Marcello, would often attend these meetings as well, as they put many of their differences aside to deal with their combined hatred of the civil rights movement. Wow. Um, Holloman and Loeb were also in on the planning as well. I didn't mention them, but I feel like that was kind of assumed. Um... The idea was that they needed to get King to Memphis so the Atkins family could take care of things mm -hmm. as, you know, the Dixie Mafia. Um, according to Ronnie, it was Loeb who hired the people to loot and set fires, as I described at the beginning that Reverend Lawson talks about. <clears throat> also, Ronnie believes, and 
I don't know that he believes. He he feels pretty strongly that the deaths of the two sanitation workers was on purpose. Oh, yeah, definitely. That they killed them in order to draw bigger attention to what was going on to mm-hmm. get King to Memphis. So, I want to tell you what he says happened that day, but first I need to tell you the story of a cab driver named Louis Ward. Now, this is not my favorite story, and, like, as far as, like, information, it's a little sketchy. But it does get corroboration by Ronnie, um, and I'll tell you that at the end. So, Ward is a um, cab driver, and he did take his story to the police and even the attorney general years later, but they dismissed it. So, another cab driver that day comes on the radio to tell the other drivers what he saw. He picked up a man at the Lorraine Motel, a black man with a very large amount of luggage. He was... Looking toward the lot, like, the cab driver was looking towards Jim's grill, Mm -hmm. and the man who he was picking up tried to keep getting his attention away from there. Yeah. Um, And he ended up looking up to the balcony, saw the murder, um, but what he saw next was even more significant. He looked back at the lot, saw a puff of smoke, and a man jump the wall and run over to a police car that he then got into and sped away. Huh. So, this driver of car 58 told his dispatcher and everyone this whole story. And he was taking this man with the luggage to the airport. Mm-hmm. So, um, this guy Ward's like, I want to know more. So, he goes out to the airport to see, like, to yeah. talk to him. When he gets there, the police come and the police take his statement. Why so, would the police be there? Um, theoretically, the dispatcher calls the police to say one of my cabbies saw something. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you uh-huh. should go take his story. Yeah. Which... So real, the, like, real quick, like. Yeah. Yeah. So the police go out, and I don't even know. I mean, it's on a cab radio. Like, it's a CB. I mean, the police could have the channel. I like, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like. Just because the police here clearly don't give a flip. <laughs> well, anyway, so. About Martin. So, like. So the cab driver goes out there, and um, he is interviewed, and then he's called back to the garage, and Ward's like, I ha- he also works security. He did security for different businesses. Mm-hmm. And obviously things are crazy, breaking apart. So yeah. he's like, I kind of had to leave and I went off to do my other work. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to the garage a couple of days later, he was told that that driver was murdered and there was no other explanation given as to what happened. And basically that he got, the- he, he knew he should not question this yeah. any yeah. further. Um, Now, unfortunately, this is where things get a little tricky. When he did come forward, he could not remember the name of the driver, which, like... It doesn't mean they were friends. I know, but he couldn't remember his name. Like, they did some digging, and they did come across a person who fit the bill, but this person also was dead. They found a death certificate for him. No, they just found a death certificate. No real proof, but that was dated eight months before the murder. Um... But, on the other hand, like, if the police did interview him, which this guy saw, there should be an interview in the police file, right. which there isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said, Ronnie Lee does provide some corroborating information here. Um, he says they planned for every contingency that day. Uh, Ronnie was on the ground making sure everyone was where they needed to be. So, if the shot missed, he was going to be killed in the police car. If he made it to the hospital alive, he was to be killed there. Ronnie witnessed the cab picking up the black man with lots of bags that day. He also witnessed the man he identified as Lieutenant Earl Clark jumping the wall, running from the lot, and getting in the police car, which is exactly what the cab driver says he saw. 
was so this. So this isn't the same guy that owns Jim's Grill, right? No. Okay. But, because Jim just went back inside. Lloyd went back into Jim's. With the gun. Yeah. Right. But, um, so the guy with the luggage, and my theory about the guy with the luggage is the guy that went to the hotel and yes. said he was with them and I was like, he... just that's... a guy. But he, I, see, that's the thing. I don't think he is just a guy. Well, yeah, I right? know. But, um, so, and again, so Lieutenant Earl Clark comes up a second time. Mm -hmm. So he said that, um, he says, Ronnie says Lieutenant Clark was the one that jumped Mm -hmm. over the wall and got in the police car and sped off he testified to all of this and also said that um later that night a family friend named chess butler admitted to killing the cab driver because earl clark was worried about how many people saw him that day like he realized when he got over the wall and get to get in like right. there was a lot more people around than he was comfortable with including yeah. this cab driver yeah. because i'm sure a lot of the people were people he knew that were supposed to be there mm -hmm. but then there's this cab driver right like and he's also taking someone who we theoretically think might be involved you know what i mean like mm -hmm. and he's afraid it's all going to come together i'm just curious as so ronnie says that his brother was in the lot, and his brother's the one that pulled the trigger. Okay. Um, so then why would the lieutenant be jumping the goddamn fence? Well. Or the wall or whatever. So there's more to it. Um, this is just what Ronnie says. He says his brother, Earl Clark, and Lloyd Jowers were in that lot together. The three of them. Okay. So. Ronnie also gives us some information about the room change as well. So I'm going to jump to that and we'll talk more about the, the trigger man because um, Bill Pepper actually thinks there's a different trigger man that makes more sense. So how many people were behind that wall? I know, right? <laughs> um, so Ronnie says that um, the room change at the last minute was because, like I said, he was in charge of contingencies. He's yeah. like the, He's the planner man. Yeah, like, yeah. he's not doing anything, but he's making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be. Yeah. So, he's the, the first plan was to shoot from the fire station. Remember how I told you the, like, day before, everybody's yeah. all around? Well, they decided that it was, even with the black firefighters removed, it was still too public and out in the open, which is why he had the ground floor room, because he would have come out that door across from the fire station. And then, yeah, okay. They decided that wasn't going to work and that's when they changed it to the lot behind Jim's grill and why he had to be moved to that balcony because they could catch the balcony and mm -hmm. the lot no problem mm -hmm. and it's more hidden than right. the fire station that's right on main street right yeah so I thought that was pretty significant too in that he like yeah kind of gives us some more context as to like why and it makes sense mm -hmm. you know like I can see why they go yeah we'll do it from here and then as things are going on, they're like, wow, this is way too busy. Like, we can't. I just thought the balcony made sense from, honestly, the beginning. It's open. It's probably oh, yeah. I mean, it, it does make like... sense. But if I, I looked at the pictures, and it, if you look at the front door, like the ground floor of the motel, it does come right out to mm -hmm. where the fire station is. Yeah. So, like, walk out the door, and if someone's upstairs from the fire station, it would be a different shot, but equally... Doable. More people may have seen him. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so like I said, Ronnie's adamant his brother pulled the trigger. His brother had told him he pulled the trigger. Now, his brother could just be bragging that he did it. Like, yeah. his brother just might want him to think that he did it so he doesn't think it's someone else to keep him safe. 
Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. um, the less you know, the better kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, Bill Pepper has another suspect. And I will get to this, but to kind of talk about what you were asking about, like, Earl Clark. This person is close friends with Earl Clark. And the theory is that one's a spotter and one's the shooter. And Jowers is just out there to get rid of the gun. So, like, a lot of times with, um, like, a shot, like, he's, like, in the military. Right. Yeah, but, I mean, So, I they guess... think that that's what, that's why they were both there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, anyway. Kind of. But not really, because. I just, yeah. it's hard for me to not believe that Earl Clark was there, because so many people have said that Earl Clark was there. Like, so many people have been, like. Why is Alexa listening to us? Oh, it's just a notification. Oh, okay. She's, she's either going to ask me for <laughs> a review of something I bought, ask me if I need to buy something again, or tell me that something's being delivered tomorrow. Or that the FBI is listening to her, like, every word right now. Whatever. Oh, well, it's too late. I've been talking about this for weeks, so, well, you know. Well, look at Look at her. She's still like, yeah, No, until I ask her, it won't go away. I'm not going to lie. Alexa. Alexa scares me. What's my notification? One new notification from Amazon Shopping. Three weeks ago, you bought a cleaning and washing sponge on Amazon. How many stars would you rate it from one to five? Not now. No problem. When you're ready, just say, Alexa, read my old notifications. If any of you could hear that, she asked me to review a sponge we bought. I don't like the Alexa home Google thing. I'm just, I'm not, I don't know. It freaks me out. They're listening to you on your phone. I don't have no, any. No, no, no. It's the same. From a paranormal aspect. Oh. Fucking freaks me out. <laughs> she just starts singing songs and like talking and I didn't say anything. Anyway. All right. So let's talk about our final suspect. Um, his name is Frank Strausser, another Memphis police officer. Oh. So, Frank Strausser, uh, Strausser, apparently I don't like to say that name, <laughs> returned from Vietnam where he was wounded and lost his brother to become a police officer in Memphis. By all accounts, he was brutal. Um, he was a horrible, horrible man. Um, and especially in those early days, it was known that you did not cross him. Uh, Bill Pepper interviews his former partner, who goes on to say that he um, abused his power regularly and often targeted places where black people congregated. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a story about him going into a bar that was mostly for black people, and he went in there and screamed racial epithets and shot the jukebox. Like, he's just unhinged, yeah. does not like black people. It's, it's a thing. Um... Lenny Curtis is another character we need to talk about for a minute. He was a custodian at the police gun range. Okay. And as he put it, um, we were kind of unseen people, right? Like, we were right. there, but we weren't really there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has an interesting story to tell about Mr. Strausser and Mr. Earl Clark. So, he knew both of them. He came there often. Um, and they actually had a lounge in there, so sometimes they'd hang out in there while they were waiting for calls. Oh, okay. Like, with a TV and stuff. So, like, they didn't just go there to 
to shoot. Yeah. Like, it was a little bit more than that. Because at first I'm like, why are they there all the time? It's weird, yeah. but that's why. Um, so anyway, a couple, not long before the murder, um, the fire chief, Roy, Roy Young, who I haven't really mentioned, but he's, you know, involved in all of this too, um, yes. came in and was showing Curtis this special new gun. Uh-huh. Showing him this special gun, and he was going on and on about it, and Curtis said it, like, it was pretty unique, right? So, on the day of the murder, Curtis overheard Strausser saying that someone was going to blow his MF, MFing brains out when Dr. King was being interviewed on TV. As I said, they were interviewing him that day before mm-hmm. about the injunction. Yeah. Um, so, around 3 p.m., Frank Strausser came out with the gun that he... Oh, I didn't say this. I'm sorry. Frank had been the one shooting that gun. Roy showed it to Curtis, but mm-hmm. Frank was the one who had been coming in and taking it down to the range and shooting it regularly. Sighting it in. Exactly. So, um, that day, he comes up and he's dressed differently. And Curtis notices this because he sees law enforcement all the time. Mm-hmm. And he basically describes him being dressed like a firefighter. Oh. Like, I guess they had a special, not special, it wasn't like a uniform, it was just he's like, he kind of wore what a firefighter would wear if they were like, going to the house, like firehouse without their uniforms on. Yeah, yeah. Um, And like, I I trust somebody who sees law enforcement enough to notice that this guy's definitely dressed different. To discern the difference, Right? Um, He noticed like he had like sunglasses and stuff, like, you know, and he just thought it was weird. Yeah. And then he notices that he goes out and gets in Roy Young, the fire chief's car, not his own, and leaves. That's odd. So, theoretically, is he can go to the fire station now unnoticed and park in the fire chief's car. No one's going to be like, oh, why is that guy here? There's no reason to question it. It's yeah. the fire chief's car. Right. Sunglasses to maybe, like, you know, yeah. at a glance, you're not going to look too hard and say, who's that? Um, it also, for me, goes back to the nice dressed man part. Right. Because, like... It's probably like, buttoned down. Yep, yeah, exactly. So, um... So, after what he saw and heard, um, he actually... Curtis actually tried to warn some people about... Like, he didn't know anything, but he did make some phone calls and couldn't get through to anyone. And when you hear him talk about it, it's actually just heart-wrenching because he's like, you got to tell them, like, they're trying to kill Dr. King. I know they are. Like, he's yeah. trying to get through. Um, and he, when he goes home and finds out that he's, you know, dead, he's devastated by the whole thing. Um, but at this point, he is aware that Frank Strausser is kind of, like, eyeing him up, okay? Oh, no. Like, he was there that day, and, yeah. like, yeah. Um, you know, and you would you would be paranoid after something like this. So one day, he asked Curtis to go with him Uh-oh. to take the payroll, and I don't know where they took it. I don't, whatever. I either didn't write it down, <laughs> or I don't remember, but a thing that they didn't ask him to do. This isn't, he's, it's not part of his it's job. It's not part of his job. Yeah. And he's like, of course I have to say yes. He's an armed officer. Yeah. Who has a reputation. Who's like unhinged. So he gets in the car with him and he's like freaking out, right? And Strausser asks him point blank what he thinks about James Earl Ray killing Dr. King. Probably didn't call him Dr. King. But Curtis has said, of course he did it. Like, what else is he going to say? Yeah. You know. But um, he did say that he over the years, like, you know, he definitely felt that he was... Like, watched watched by it. Um, So, 
interestingly enough, Bill Pepper tracks down Frank Strausser. Um, he's in his 70s mm-hmm. when they have this discussion. And I didn't put the date down, I apologize. But he tracks him down and he says, like, I off- he offered him 500 bucks and dinner. And I guess this guy was, like, pretty down on his luck. Because, you know, being a violent police officer apparently doesn't do well for you in old age. There's no retirement, you mean? Whatever. So yeah. all of that, there's nothing. So he's not doing great. So he actually agrees to it, you know. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll come. So Frank begins by saying that he was, um, Strausser, Frank Strausser's like, you know, I was resentful of the sanitation workers' strike and the black people were ruining the city, which corroborates... You know, what other people said about him. Yeah. He claims he was at home the night of the murder because he was working seven to seven those days, which honestly doesn't rule him out in any way. No. But, um, so Bill Pepper decides to push things with him and he's telling him, I'm the attorney who represented James Earl Ray and the King family, like kind of who I am. Yeah. Like, so you can give it our understanding why I'm here. And Strausser says that, because he kind of started out with, like, I just want to know what your thoughts were from that time. You know, you were around then. Right. Um, So Strausser says he didn't know Ray. And Bill Pepper says, I know, because that was never an assertion, right? right? Like, you know. So Strausser goes on to say that I don't think he could have pulled it off himself. He was a petty criminal with no clear motive. And Pepper's like, I agree. (laughs) And this is really funny to me, because if you really are involved, Go with the government story. Yeah. Go with the... Oh, yeah, he totally did it. Because, like, why so... Like, and he's not the only people. one yeah. that goes back and says, oh, yeah, James Earl Ray could have never pulled this off. I'm like, y'all set up the guy that none of you think could do it. Like, it's really funny well, to me. I, well, because I think probably time has passed. I know, and they Officials don't... Officials have changed. Yeah, People things... Died, it's all different. You know? And yeah. so when he was asked about his involvement... Or he was asked about involvement by the mafia, the Dixie Mafia, and the FBI. Strausser actually goes on to not deny any of that and admit his own involvement with both the mafia and the Dixie Mafia. Okay. So, like, he basically says, yeah, I was corrupt. Like, I I did stuff for them. Um, And when you say you're doing stuff for them, it could have easily been this. Like, Mm -hmm. he doesn't say it, but, you know. Um, He also tells him... That Lloyd Jowers admitted his involvement and that Lloyd Jowers says the shooter was Earl Clark. And Strausser goes on to go, oh, well, Earl Clark did have strong feelings about things, but he was a good friend of mine. We were really close. We went to the gun range a lot together. Okay. And that's why Bill Pepper has this theory that that's the the shooter and the spotter is the two of them. They were seen a lot together and... He corroborates that, yeah, he was my guy. We were together a lot. Yeah. We, he had strong feelings about things, which are the same feelings, clearly, that he that has. He has. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, now that we've talked about a lot of this, we have one more person to deal with. And There's so many names. I know. It's a lot. So, so many names. It's funny. I thought I'd be, like, I thought I would struggle with it, but I'm not. Because as, as I'm doing it, it just keeps coming back to yeah, me. Yeah. So the last person we have to talk about before we talk about the bigger conspiracy is Raul. Oh, Raul. Raul. So most people, including, you know, Ray's attorney, don't think that Raul is real. And it was a way for him to shift culpability away from himself. Or that Raul is a mixture of people. Like, he isn't one guy. He's... He's a little bit of all of them. He's a little bit of everybody that came and said, hey, run these drugs, do these things, you know. 
Um, and I have actually no problem with that story. Mm-hmm. Like, to say that Raul has to be real for Ray's story to be real is, is bullshit to me. Yeah. Like, that, those two things, for me, don't go hand in hand. But um, I will tell you this story. And this woman is a little bit crazy. I love it. Like, not a little bit. I'm sorry. She's a lot crazy. And she does an injustice to herself by her story being so weird. But, um, so I didn't mention this before. Um, and I don't know how, like, I lived in the 90s. Like, I don't know. We didn't have HBO. I must have missed all of this. But HBO did a mock trial of James Earl Ray in the early 90s, in 1993. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to find it and watch it now because, like, yeah. you know. So, now that we have after that, Glenda Grabo and her husband, Roy, contacted Bill Pepper's investigators with this story. So, like I said, it's pretty freaking outrageous. Now, they were able to corroborate some of it, which is why I'm going to tell it. Like, okay. they... I think they don't believe all of it, but some parts of it they were able to, like, like, ascertain. Yeah. Yeah. So she had a horrible childhood full of, like, abuse and neglect. Um, At one point she's living with her aunt and uncle and they stopped feeding her. Wow. So there was, like, a corner store down the way and she would, she lived in in Texas, in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Or Houston. Shit. Whatever. Texas. Texas. Um, There's a corner store. She walked by it all the time. Um, and there was a Hispanic guy that she, I think she says Diego. Mm-hmm. I can't tell. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a transcript. It was from a podcast. Mm-hmm. I think she says his name was Diego or Dago or something like mm-hmm. that. And he would give her food. Oh. Like he would be like, here, you want something to eat? And she was like so appreciative. And he was kind of creepy and followed her around, but she didn't care because she was just so desperate for food and right. someone. Yeah. Um, so at 15, she marries Roy to get out of her terrible home life. Which turns out to be not much of an upgrade because he is off drinking all the time. So, Glenda begins using sex work to make money to pay their rent. Wow. While doing this sex work, she meets an older man in her work named Amaro. She calls him Amaro. I couldn't I couldn't tell. It was Armando or Amaro. I'm just going to go with Amaro. Mm. Um, it, the names really aren't super that important. Yeah, yeah. So, he took a liking to her and gave her a job as his driver. Like, okay. I think she's still doing the other stuff, too, but, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and this meant going to the docks to pick up shipments of guns and taking them back to this guy Felix's house. And she was just the driver, but she was there, yeah. right? Like, she wasn't really involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came there regularly, and one day when they arrived, um, Dago's there from when she was younger. And she's like, holy crap. It's you. And he appeared to be in charge of things, and it turns out that Amaro was his uncle, and his real name was Raul. Huh. So, Amaro at some point tells her that they're from Portugal, and confided that Raul was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King. Raul was pissed that he told her. There's a strange story about a viewfinder... (laughs) That I can't. Okay, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna say it because she says it in the thing. But I'm like, this is the crazy. I think that this, like, again, this is totally made up. Okay. So she says she has a little keychain with this little viewfinder that has pictures of MLK, JFK, and RFK in it. Like, who has that? What's that even a thing? 
I mean, maybe from like a like, like a all of these people store. have been killed. Like here's a thing of pictures of them. No, but I bet like it's like a touristy. Maybe. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So she says she has one, and he looked at it, and he said, "I already killed that sob once. Do I have to do it again?" Okay. Like I said, this story's a little weak, but. Glenda's life takes another turn that puts her in contact with Percy Foreman. Right? Roy Lockhart! (laughs) So, she tried to hire him for Roy's brother at some point. And somehow, and this is a crazy convoluted thing, which is why I'm not doing it. She ends up working there, is what she says. Yeah, okay. Percy at some point tells her that he represented Ray. And that he was the sacrifice for all of us white people and everyone would be thankful someday. Which I can honestly believe him, like, I can see him kind of saying that. Like, he just doesn't... he he martyrs himself a lot. Right. So, she sees this as an opportunity to bring up what she knows about Raul. And Percy seems to know Raul, and Raul seems to know Percy, and they're both pissed that she, like, is telling stuff. Yeah. So, Percy tells her that she has to leave town or she's going to be killed. Okay. And she does. And this is, like, like I said, her story is more crazy. She also claims that Raul killed um, JFK, too. So, like, so, like, she definitely tall tales it a lot. Yeah. But Bill Pepper was able to find other people that say there was a Raul and Amaro running guns in the Houston, it was Houston, in the Houston that area. Just because JFK was assassinated yeah. there. And, like, if she's got this little thing that has, like, him. No, he was, it was Dallas. He was killed in was Dallas. Was he? Mm-hmm. Wow, shows what I know. Anyway, I don't even know. Like, I feel like they're running guns. I mean, they're just, they're going all over. It's fine. But they do confirm that there are these two guys that are, like, Portuguese that are running guns, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't prove anything or any of that. Yeah. Just because there's a guy named Raul out there doesn't mean he's that Raul. And right. they do some investigative work. Um, I guess at some point, Amaro was, like, in some maritime union, so they find him, because it's a strange name, they find his yeah. him in there and get a last name, and it's Quelo. And so they track down the naturalization papers for a Raul Quelo, who now lives in Yonkers, New York. And um, they go up there. They show the picture to, like, the daughter answers. It's a whole thing. The daughter answers the door, looks at the picture, and goes, that's my dad, but he won't talk to you. Um, he says he's never been to Texas or Tennessee and has work papers to prove that he's been working in New York this entire time, like, that it can't be him. Mm-hmm. Which, obviously... I don't know that that proves anything or doesn't prove anything. Right. Um, And now this part, I don't know. Like they claim that they had Glenda call him and he never could say her name right. He didn't call her Glenda. He called her Olinda. Okay. And so like they listen to the call and he calls her Olinda and they talk for a minute. I don't know if I believe any of this. Yeah. Because, like I said, Raul isn't a linchpin for me. It's kind of no. why I saved him for last. Because he's yeah, yeah. not, like, Oof, he's not a linchpin for me in this. But, um, so, one thing is true. The guy is Raul, and he was involved. Or the guy is Raul, and he was not. Right. Like, there's a Raul Quelo that lives in Yonkers. and. But I don't think he was the trigger guy. Like he just, He's just the manipulator if he is. So that's why, it, for me... He's the guy who's running the guns. Yeah, and for me, it's just not important. No. But people do make a really big deal about the fact that Ray makes this guy up. And again, I think it's to, like, his own culpability. Like, Ray is not as innocent as all that. I just don't think... 
I'm already giving it away, but I don't think he shot Martin Luther King Jr. I don't think he was innocent, and I don't think he wasn't doing things that he wasn't supposed to be doing, and I think he didn't mention people's names for his own protection. Where the hell do you think they got the special barrel gun from? Right. And then who do you think delivered it? So. The guy who took the fall. So let's talk about the bigger picture. Okay. So we have these pawns, right? They're playing out this whole thing. And they have varying levels of influence and Mm -hmm. significance. But there are two more powerful people that I need to tell you about that have a lot to gain and a lot of potential involvement. And those two people are H.L. Hunt and J. Edgar Hoover. So. Hoover's in every big assassination in, like, the past... We're going to... Okay. Hoover is just fascinating i could do an i could do an entire podcast about hoover but anyway we'll start with hunt so this guy is this guy is something like wow he was a politically motivated super rich guy he's an oil tycoon he you know talk about pull yourself up by your bootstraps he was a nobody who you know hit texas gold and yeah he was known as the richest man in america at some point like, he was insanely rich. That's so gross. And he spent his money and time on spreading a hard-line right-wing agenda. Mm-hmm. He had a radio show called Lifeline that was basically the precursor to Fox News. <laughs> the truth was not always important, and it was just a lot of fear-mongering, and, like, but this was important to him. And, like, here's his views on the world, okay? This is... He opposes all government aid of any kind. He would never give any money to charity. He did not believe in charity. Um, He thought the number of votes you should get should be based on how much you pay in taxes. Not like everybody gets a vote. Like, yeah. Um, He was against the UN, the war on poverty, social security, and communism. Which is what him and Hoover have in common is like, yeah. So, and he's, like, a major agitator politically. He tried to derail JFK's run for office, which obviously didn't work. Um, And the messages you would hear on his radio show were, like, JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. are bringing communism to your doorsteps, you know, like, that kind of stuff. Um, He was aligned with a lot of people in the government who also did not believe in a Cold War. They thought we should be the aggressors against the USSR, and, like, you know, after Cuba with Kennedy, like, they were pretty much real fired up about that. Um, and they interviewed this guy, John Currington, who was Hunt's right-hand man. He, like, did all of his crap work. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that this guy wrote his own book about things about this guy. So, like, he is also self-promoting, but he has an interesting story to tell as well. Mm-hmm. Um and this is, like, I didn't put all of it in there, but I was listening to this part, and I'm like, how did you keep working for this? He must have been paying you so well, because... Or out of fear. He was, like, they they had a really strange relationship. They never talked beyond, like, work. There was no small talk, no nothing. Like, how's your family? What are you doing? What did you do this weekend? <laughs> nothing. Just Keeps it from getting personal. Like, yeah, but to the point where it's probably awkward. Um, he had to be available at any time of day. He would call him in the middle of the night regularly. Like, this was all the time. Um, he had one vice. 
He didn't drink, smoke, anything, just gambling. And he gambled a lot. And he was a big, he would go to big poker games all over the country. And Currington was expected to go with him and basically be at his beck and call. Like, and he would send him to the bank to get more money. And he wouldn't let him take a cab because that cost more than the subway. Like, he'd send him to the bank to get, like, oh like $100,000, but then he had to, like, take the subway back. Like, oh and God. he tells these stories, and it's pretty, like, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, like, his political leanings did interfere with things. Like, he tried to be in the New York World Fair one year, like, do this carnival, and then be able to promote his lifeline thing. Mm-hmm. And once the um, organizers found out, like, his political, like, hardline political leanings they basically said no you're not doing this so like it did have an effect on things beyond just you know and he blamed the kennedys he's like those kennedys you know they did this to me like he was um yeah (laughs) i know um and i like had my mind going there and i decided not to like (laughs) just decided to like reel it in but yeah so Let's talk a little bit more about Hoover. And I've already mentioned him a little and Clyde Tolson, but we need to talk about it a little bit more. Um, and I, like I said, I could do a whole thing about him. There's a really great four-part episode about him on conspiracy theories from Parcast that, yeah. like, I loved. But it was so good. Um, so Hoover ruled the 50s. He had power. He had clout. He had the president's approvals. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the 60s came, things started to change with the Kennedys and the civil rights movement. His grasp on power was a little bit more diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I said, the first thing, the thing you need to know most about him is that for him, the only threat was communism. All other things played second fiddle to the Red Scare. He also used this as his reason for the constant surveillance that he perpetrated on people. He would say that they were communists, whether they were or weren't, and that's why he was surveilling everyone. And MLK (coughs) was no exception. So he would tell anyone who listened that Martin Luther King Jr. and the other members of um, the SCLC or the Civil Rights Movement were communists. And... Their true intention was to infiltrate America with their communist agenda. Oh, which is? I, yeah. <laughs> which so, is? hence, they needed to be surveilled all the time. And his evidence was that one member of King's inner circle, named uh, a gentleman named Odell Levinson, had been a legal member of a communist party years earlier when he was younger, like many other Americans. Lots of people were, actually. Yeah. Um, and he ended up leaving that and focusing his efforts on the civil rights movement. But Hoover used that as his, like, well, this is why I can do this, basically. Because if one guy in this giant group is involved, then they all must be. Um, But the truth really is that Hoover was a racist um, who exaggerated people's fears about domestic terrorism to feed his own agenda. Um, One time Kennedy asked him how many black agents the Bureau had. And his answer was, well, we don't classify our agents by race, culture, or creed. And Kennedy said, well, that's great, and I really appreciate that, but you still haven't answered my question. And so Hoover, like, basically found these four black guys that were, I think, dry. I couldn't remember, and I didn't look it back up. Sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) They were either drivers or custodians. Like, they either were his drivers or custodians. And he basically deputized them and went back to Kennedy and was like, we have four. Like, this is him. Um, So, how did he attack Martin Luther King Jr.? Um, 
There's a famous memo that was passed through the FBI two days after the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech that stated, Martin Luther King Jr. was the most dangerous Negro in America. The memo went on to say, it may be unrealistic to limit ourselves to legalistic proof of ev or evidence that would stand up in court or before congressional committees. Like, basically... He's so dangerous that we are going to need to use illegal measures to deal with right. this. Um, I, I don't know why you put that in a memo, personally, but um, King was surveilled for years. Um, but after the death of JFK, Hoover does get more control back because um, Bobby's got other issues and it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. So this is when um, he basically gets together with all the FBI leads from Atlanta, Birmingham, Memphis, and they all come together to go, like, what are we going to do about this situation? Mm -hmm. And this is when things get really bad. Um, and the attacks had nothing to do with communism. They were personal attacks on his character and his private life. Um, and then Hoover would get frustrated because media outlets didn't want to publish the stuff he was leaking to them, mm -hmm. um, basically. Like, he had a few, like, soft, like, FBI friendly ones that would publish stuff but he was really frustrated because he couldn't get things out there the way he wanted to he couldn't bring him down in this way um, like one time this is so, so messed up so right before um, King accepted the Nobel Peace Prize he was received a letter that looked like it was from a former supporter accusing him of every sexual and racial perversion you could imagine and at the end of the letter it just says you know what you need to do and that came from Hoover that was from the FBI yeah and it came out later like this is all proven yeah. um, after Hoover died all of this came out in the late 70s like that this was all happening um, and it's illegal. <laughs> like, yeah. And he did it, um, like, all of this. And this is why, like I said earlier about the King family being so adamant. Because they knew this was all happening. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they were aware right. of this. Every hotel room that Martin Luther King Jr. went to was bugged. Mm -hmm. Every place he went was bugged. His house, everything. Like, he yeah. was never not being surveilled. Um, and he was, um, Hoover was the first to say that Ray acted alone. And that the murder was racially motivated. Like, he came out as soon as they identified him. Yeah. And was like, yep, he did it. And it yeah, was racially yeah. motivated. And he is the top law enforcement agent in the country. Um, and nobody would ever come out against him because he had dirt on everybody, even other agents. Like, yeah. they would come out later and be like, you know, it was horrific what we did. But, like, we all felt too scared to, to do anything. Um... So the other thing that I want to talk about really quickly, and we're almost done, I promise, is the um, how the FBI and their relationship with the mafia and Clyde Tolson. So, oh, and I didn't, I forgot to, I threw this in here later. So basically the FBI, like, you know how there's all these protests going on during the civil rights movement where mm -hmm. people are being brutalized and murdered and it's, it's horrific. Mm -hmm. The FBI is like, well, they basically brought it on themselves. Yeah. They knew the consequences. And that was their official stance. That wasn't, like, under-the-table stance. That's their official stance as to what was happening. It's insane. So, Hoover famously said that organized crime did not exist and they had opposed no threat to America. Uh. And he was made to look a fool on this topic when the Appalachian meeting, which was a historic summit of the American Mafia, held at the home of mobster Joe... Joseph... Joe the Barber... Barbara... 
<laughs> I love mafia names. Um, it was held in November 14th, 1957 in Appalachian, New York. Allegedly, the meeting was held to discuss various topics including loan sharking, narcotics trafficking, and gambling. Along with dividing the illegal operations controlled by the recently murdered Albert Anastasia. An estimated 100 mafiosa from the U.S., Italy, and Cuba were thought to have attended the meeting. Um, immediately after the murder that October of the other guy I just said, basically they were coming together so that the Luciano, which became the Genovese crime family, could basically get control of everything mm -hmm. and legitimize their power as the new head of the Cosa Nostra. Mm -hmm. um, local and state law enforcement became suspicious when numerous expensive cars bearing license plate from around the country arrived in what was described as the sleepy hamlet of Appalachian. And so basically they set up roadblocks and a bunch of people ran off into the woods, but they did end up catching 60 bosses. Oh my God. And detained them and indicted them. And um, 20 of those who attended the meeting were charged with conspiring to obstruct justice by lying about the nature of the underworld meeting. And they were found guilty and fined. And then anyway, like they, it doesn't matter. The convictions were overturned. But Hoover couldn't deny that they existed any longer. Right. Because they literally, like, did. Yeah. And this made huge press. Like, there's headlines about this. Like, you know. Um, so why was Hoover soft on the mafia? Because this doesn't change anything. This is 57. And he's still the same way about this when JFK is in office and Bobby wants to start getting, like, and on, like start taking down the mafia. And Hoover's like, no. So, like, why? Why is he so soft on the mafia? I think it's pretty obvious. <clears throat> so, one theory... No, I, I mean, yes and no. So, one theory is that... Um, the mafia was hard to prosecute. And he doesn't like to lose. I think that's probably part of it. Mm -hmm. Another thing. The mafia is great for that dirty work that you need someone to do. Mm -hmm. Like Tolson... In Memphis, going, I need someone to take care of this. Mafia is perfect for that. Mm -hmm. When you need illegal things to happen and you can't have it traced back. And three, super interesting, and a little bit like E! News online here. Oh. Um, there is a theory that Tolson and Hoover vacationed at this particular hotel in Florida every year. Uh -huh. And it was owned by mob boss Meyer Lansky. And it's thought that he had, he had pictures of Hoover and uh -oh. Tolson involved in... A sexual relationship that oh, they uh, so they had dirt on him yeah and he knows how well that works so like right. you know yeah um because they just think it's really weird that because the and i mean like i don't want to get okay I, I promise i won't go too far into this but the fbi starts and hoover starts by like taking down like um what's his name um not dylan um Dillinger, that's it. Like, yeah. you know, like, taking down these criminals, like, hard on crime. Like, yeah. he starts the FBI and gains his power with this. So the mafia looks like the kind of thing that he would be like, yeah, we need to stop this. Yeah. Like, how are they not communists? <laughs> like, and then all of a sudden he's like, yeah. nope, no, nope, mafia's no. fine. So, and as I said before, Tolson, back to Tolson, he was really good friends with Russell Atkins. You know, Ronnie mm -hmm. says that there are pictures of this guy, this mm -hmm. second hand to Hoover at his house when he was a kid, like you know, like hanging out at a barbecue. Um, and after, um, so after the assassination, Hoover's reaction 
does paint him maybe maybe in a better light, but I don't really think it means anything. He does say that I hope the SOB doesn't die. They'll make him a martyr, um, which absolves him of nothing. And, right. you know, I think also he's thinking about his own legacy and like how we were both how the world remembers the two men. And, and he obviously would have hoped it would have went the other way. Um, and so back to our friend, uh, Mr. Hunt, to tie the whole story up. So after King was shot, Hunt goes into hiding, which I think is hilarious. He basically, he said so much shit about this guy that he's like, I'm afraid for my life. Mm -hmm. So he goes into hiding. Um, But he gets a call from Hoover that they need to meet. So he goes and meets with Hoover. And they all agree. Oh, and LBJ was kind of in on this too. But like just in the conversations, Mm -hmm. I don't think he was really involved in the whole thing. But he did not like King either. He hated him, in fact. Um, and they were all talking about ways to um, get through this. And one of the things they came up with, according to this Currington guy, is that they needed him to plead guilty. Because if he pleads guilty, there's no trial and there's no chance that any Sit of this up, comes done. out. Exactly. Yeah. And it puts an end to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it yeah. it caps it. So, interestingly, um, <laughs> and this is the part where things get real interesting. So, um, Mr. Currington when interviewed, said that um, he was given a briefcase to take to one Percy Foreman in Dallas. The briefcase had $125,000 in it. He went to his office. He handed him the briefcase. Percy took the briefcase, wasn't even surprised for a second, said thanks, walked away. Hmm. So how did Percy Foreman end up in Ray's jail cell that weekend to try and convince him to be his you know client and then end up just having him plead guilty mm-hmm. well and and here's the thing hoover is not gonna be able to pay someone the hundred twenty five thousand dollars but hunt can right you know yeah, like yeah, yeah hunt can and hunt has the same beliefs as hoover so he says i need your help because i need you to pay this guy to go do this thing yeah um and i mean i know like obviously none of that's you know said but um, Percy Foreman also does have another connection to the Hunts. He was actually indicted for taking money from the Hunt family to convince his client to plead guilty to prevent a trial that would have brought unsavory things out about one of Hunt's sons. Oh, my God. Sound familiar? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, that's it. That's all of it. And, I mean, it's not all of it. There's, like, a world of conspiracy things about that. And, like, I've listened to conspiracy theories, like, real wackadoo stuff, and I none of this seems crazy to me. It does not. Like, this, like, I feel like there were so many people from so many angles that this poor man, like, I think that's probably why he wrote that speech, is because he knew. Like, he was, he was fucking doomed, and I hate to say it like that, but... I mean, nope. when you've got people coming at you from, like, the underground, the above ground, like, the top of... I mean, the top yep. of our, like, political government at you. Yeah, and you're, and you're working, and, like, you're doing all of the things, right? You, be, you got the Nobel Peace Prize. You're Time Man of the Year. You've had successes, but, like, it's not changing the powers that be, right. you know? And, like, like, and Ronnie Lee Atkins, who came forward in 2009 and has a lot of information, right, about mm-hmm. that day, you know, he came forward because he felt bad he felt like someone needed to know what happened right. because 
he's like, you know, I was raised in that and felt a certain way, but now I'm a different person. Right. And like they described him as like this biker dude, you know, like, but he's like, I'm a different person now. And it's important that like people know what happened. What happened yeah. Right. Um, and I think that that's what a lot of this is, is people coming forward later saying, you know, um, and you think about the JFK assassination and the conspiracies with that. To me, this one is so, like, I don't want to come on and, like, I don't want to say exactly what I believe about the JFK assassination, but, yeah. like, what I'm going to say is that this is so much more easy to believe that it was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so much easier to believe based on the evidence of that day mm-hmm. and the weird things that were happening in memphis that day like right it's so easy too many red flags for it but not only that but i mean but there was enough people one... in power in memphis to keep those things under wraps for years and years because and everything that he was doing was going against the political agenda that had been set forth in the united states mm-hmm. for so fucking long well, i mean it's how like the united states came into power is how they have kept power mm-hmm. and, and still do yes and that he was going <laughs> and he was successfully going against and, all of that yeah and when you if you want to send a message which is the best way to send a fucking message you take down your brightest star essentially exactly i mean like, thankfully, you know, it's... No, and it, yeah. and it's it's so... It's it's also, like, you know, and I did read a little bit about this, and I saw, and they talked about it in the podcast, is that, like, the Vietnam, and Kim coming out of it against Vietnam, mm-hmm. pushed him into a different... Um, Arena. Lane. Yeah. And that lane is a dangerous lane to be in because people had strong feelings. And like I said, like, that guy Hunt, he thought, like... The Cold War, like, we should be attacking Russia. Like, he was like, this should, you know, like, what's going on in Vietnam should be, like, a world war. Like, this fear of communism was so great with people that they were ready to basically burn it all down. And so he's kind of stepping into a whole new, and it makes sense. Politically, it makes sense. Like, it's just... Um, not that he shouldn't have spoken out about it and his argument is the best argument I've ever heard mm-hmm. you know uh, I mean that I thought I I can say that the war in Vietnam is was morally wrong and we should not have been there mm-hmm. for any reason whatsoever um, in my personal opinion but like you know yeah and you're gonna send off <laughs> young men to die for rights that they don't even have in their own country Right. They, like, you're so worried about communi- communism. Meanwhile, these guys that are working in the sanitation industry in Memphis are, like... They're not even getting paid. Barely getting paid. Right. It's unsafe. It's horrific. You know? It's it's all just so much hypocrisy, but... Um, and it's not so much... I, like, I don't think it's so much about uh, the fear of communism. I think it's the... Those who are in power have a fear, fear of... Fear of losing their power. Of, cap- like, losing capitalism. Yeah, which well, is, given them the money and the power. Yep. If we lose that, they don't have it anymore. Oh, yeah, definitely. And what's the best way? Like, everything that keeps our country together is us staying in our lanes and being afraid, and that narrative comes from those who are above us, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. But Yeah, 100%. And so I think that... And I think it's really a credit, and I would like to find out more about him. I, did, I didn't probably find out as much as I could, but this that gentleman, Bill Pepper, who pursued this for so long Mm -hmm. you know and feel so strongly about it 
And he was like, he was looked at like a crazy crackpot at some point. But as more and more things came to light and the civil trial happened, people went, wait a second. Yeah. This isn't as cut and dry. And I learned... Nothing ever is so cut and dry. So many things about this. Like, I mean, I never... Like, it sucks, because I never questioned it. I'm like, well, a white man, James Earl Ray, killed... I didn't even know he wasn't from the South. Mm-hmm. I I didn't know that he was from, like, up by, like, Illinois, Missouri. Like, not that Missouri isn't the South. It's kind of the South, but not really. It's not. Not really. No. But no. I guess what I'm saying is, like, I didn't... Like, well, yeah, you know... He's above the Mason-Dixon line. The like, white guy, you know, white guy kills... The civil rights leader makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not something that I even really questioned because I'm like, I know that people are racist. It's still happening. So right. like, it doesn't, it's not hard for me to say like, yeah, all right. Right. The three named guy, because you have to have three names, obviously did it. It's pretty easy to come to that conclusion without even a lot of information based on what we know about our society. Yeah. So like, it's, it's interesting to like dig into it and really get some perspective. So anyway, that is the thing that has been occupying my life for the last like three weeks. <laughs> it was, it's a good thing. So hopefully, you know, yeah. af- after this discussion, more people will be more aware of, you know, actually what happened in Memphis on that day. And then it's not, it's not a, like you said, as cut and dry as people have been made to believe mm-hmm. or maybe don't know. Yeah, I also do think a lot about how you can get away with that shit now. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not in the same way. It would have no. to be so much more complicated. Well, but. while you were doing this, I was in Rome. Yes, I know. I'm excited. I've been in Rome. Yes. I loved that Dude, show. So fucking good. Reddit, man. Reddit. <laughs> I have never spent so much time on Reddit in my life. I did not open up Reddit on this because I was too afraid. There were so many, so <laughs> there were so many things that were on Reddit that I could not find anywhere else, including in that special. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back, and after hearing like certain audio tapes, like listening to them all the way through, I had to go back and like delete. I'm like, nope, I've changed my mind, and this is what I think now. So that the, yeah. the um yeah I so she's talking about the Vatican girl. It's a special on Netflix, and she's going to do an awesome episode about it. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about my opinions of it. But um, it's a really cool... Nah, okay, it's not cool. I do that a lot. I'm sorry. It's a really interesting case. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a really interesting case. And it's still happening. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not going to go into all the details right now, but that's going to be our next episode. And yeah, this is our first two-part episode. Yeah, my brain, How about it? My brain needs a break. <laughs> brain break. Brain break. Oh. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, friends. Your moms love you. Bye. Bye.